Alright, welcome to the latest edition of the College Football Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Khan, Senior Editor of the College Wires. With me, as always, Tyler Natuno of LSU Tigers Wire, and for the win. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week. It's probably old news by now, but we're going to get into some college football playoff discussion. We had some scheduling issues last week. We're back on it this week, though. CFP discussion, Florida State, we're going to talk about it. Uh, uh, put our opinions on it. Uh, obviously, the Heisman, upcoming ball games, coaching carousel, plenty to get to. And, uh, you know, we might even get into some college basketball discussion where it's all said and done. Because, you know, while we do focus on football, there is that whole, you know, the hardwood stuff is going on currently. Uh, but let's kick this off with the college football playoff discussion. Right now we have Alabama taking on number one Michigan in the Rose Bowl. That's an, an interesting trip. We'll, we'll get to see a really, well, actually really two good defenses. You know, I would I would have to say Alabama's got the much better offense. Uh, when you look at how look at how Jalen Milrow has been this year, and then obviously you have the other game out in the Sugar Bowl, out in New Orleans, the Big Easy. Uh, we have a rematch of last year, Bolero Alamo Bowl. Uh, Washington he's going up against the Texas Longhorns. That's going to be an interesting matchup as well. Uh, so Tyler, just real quick, if, looking at the two games, which game are you more excited for, Rose Bowl or uh, or the uh, Sugar Bowl down in New Orleans? Yes. I mean, look, first of all, I think um, this is a really good field. I think it's maybe the best four team field we've had um, in the decade that this thing has existed. Um, So, you know, I think, uh, you know, I look at both these games and I think they're both really kind of intriguing in their own ways. You know, I think the the, the game I'd probably give the edge to right now is I think Texas and Washington um, in the Sugar Bowl, just because I think that one's the one that's I think a little bit more. I don't know what to make of that matchup. You know, I think that. you know, obviously Washington's offense, very explosive in the passing game. Um, but Texas defensively is really, really sturdy, like especially the, their defensive line and the interior of that defensive line in particular. They're really good at stopping the run. That's been kind of their strength all year. We saw them do it in the Big 12 championship uh, against Ollie Gordon. And, you know, that's just a strength they have. So I, what I'm really wondering about that game first and foremost is, you know, can Texas's defense make Washington get one dimensional um, in its offensive game? You know, obviously Michael Penix and those receivers very capable, but, you know, I think they're at their best when they are able to run the ball. Well, Um, you know, we've seen that, you know, the way they played against USC in particular was the best example of it, but, but that's really when they've been at their best this year, they've been able to run the ball. So that I think is the, the, the interesting part of that game to me. Um, And looking at the other one too, I mean, Again, like you kind of said, you know, both teams really solid defensively. You know, I think that the question for Alabama, I think, is, you know, you look at the way Michigan played against Ohio State, you know, Amiga Buka and Marvin Harrison Jr., the, the skill position guys they have, they did a really good job. Um, and, you know, so it really makes me wonder if, if they're going to be able to shut those guys down, you know, like Isaiah Bond and Jermaine Burton, if they can shut those guys down. Um, and, you know, really make Jalen Milrow sort of have to do it all himself, kind of play hero ball as he has at times this year. You know, he's a really electric player, but that's asking a lot. I guess my biggest question, though, in that game is Michigan's offense, because I think it's pretty clear, you know, J.J. McCarthy hasn't been asked to do a lot in these games. You know, he hasn't really had to go win a game for Michigan. And, and, you know, I think if their plan is to go into this game, you know, if look, if they're able to go into this game and just run Blake Corum into a brick wall over and over again and win that way, 
then like the committee got it wrong with Alabama being in because that's kind of the whole value prop there is that you're not going to be able to do that. J.J. McCarthy, I think, is going to have to go win this game through the air doing some things he hasn't done this year, and that is really interesting. I think the big, big three in terms of the Rose Bowl is what can Mike Sanders still do on the outside? Because, uh, you know, Jermaine Burton is kind of a guy who was quiet early on and then he started to see him pick it up, much like the rest of the team. If he can kind of take some op- options away for Jalen Milrow, maybe force him to run around a little more, um, you, know, um, you know, that play into the hands of Michigan. So I think really, the, especially the boundary, it's really that's where this game will be won or lost for for Michigan. I think offensively they can do enough. I mean, we've up. I mean, we've we saw what a a team with out and offense in Auburn was able to do against Alabama um, just a few weeks weeks ago, uh, but. Really, when you look at Alabama, might not be a hotter team in college football right now. While they have that one loss to Texas, since that loss, they they went on a string of eleven straight wins, including beating Georgia, which uh, was a was a tough game for Georgia, but ultimately they were able to hold on in that game. Uh, so for me, I think it's going to boil down to the outside and, and Mike Sanders still, who has two pick sixes this year, five interceptions. He's shown. Uh, the ability to be a ball hawk, you know, and, and that's not surprising considering he's a converted wide receiver. Uh, over on the Texas side, yeah, I, I like what you're bringing up about Devon, Devondre, Byron Murphy, and those guys on the inside. My big thing in this game, you know, like you said, slowing down Dylan Johnson, who had a really strong game against Oregon. You know, he had the, you know, 150 yards. I think 150 might have been a little bit less than that. The two rushing touchdowns, he also had a receiving touchdown. Yeah, slowing him down will be key. Uh, but what I'm really interested to see is if if Xavier Worthy is healthy, how impactful he can be on the outside, along with Odonai Mitchell, along with Jordan Whittington. But how do the running backs perform? They have Keelan Robinson, the former Alabama transfer, uh, they have C.J. Baxter, who was a five-star signee last year. Uh, they have Jaden Blue. They have some. They have some guy mix it up, run the football. So I'm really interested to see how Texas does running the football, um, because while they haven't had a lot of issues since Jonathan Brooks Brooks gone down, you can still tell that they do miss him in the backfield. So it'll be really interesting to kind of see how that all plays out, and 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 ultimately, I think this is going to boil down to which special teams plays better because as we know, Texas uh, has had the ability to, you know, impact the game game through returns. Uh, can they set Texas up in some probable situations on offense? But uh, before we get into the Florida state discussion, Tyler, I just want to know as of right now, as of right now who do you have playing in the national championship game in Houston, Texas on January the 8th. Yeah. So I, I mean, I have kind of conflicted opinions about this whole thing because as, as we'll get into I kind of have some issues with Alabama being in this field in the first place. But with that being said, like I do think I trust them a little bit more to beat this Michigan team. I think they're more well-rounded. I just, you know, there's Michigan could totally win this game. I mean, they are, I think have been the more consistently competitive, the more consistently dominant team this year than Alabama, I should say, you know, I just, I just don't know. We just haven't seen JJ McCarthy put in that situation. And I, and Jalen Milrow has, you know, for better or worse, he's had his issues this year, but he has been put in that situation multiple times. Um, you know, he's battle tested. So, you know, I think that, uh, you know, 
that's how I kind of look at that game. I, I lean a little bit towards uh, towards Alabama, but I think looking at the other game, you know, I, this one's a lot harder for me to predict. You know, I think like you said, you kind of hit the nail on the head. I think this is one that's going to kind of come down to you know a few different play, you know, a few small plays here and there, maybe a special teams big play. Um, you know, because I think both these offenses are going to be able to score uh, in this game. I think I lean a little bit towards Texas, though, for the same reason, though. I think I just feel like they're a little bit more a complete team. I kind of trust their defense more to get those key stops in this game. And, you know, if I had to, you know, maybe I'll reevaluate in the the next couple weeks. But if I had to make my pick right now, I think I'd say we see an Alabama-Texas rematch in the national championship. Yeah, I, I think I think the Alabama's rematch is is the likely scenario when you look at these these two matchups. Uh, I, I like Alabama more. I, I just think when you look at what Jalen Milrow can do, creating, throwing the ball downfield, running the football, uh, you know, it's really going to give that Michigan defense a huge test. Test um, and and really up until they played Ohio State, we really hadn't seen them tested. Uh, but I do like the Alabama offense a little more. Uh, as what we've seen this season, seen this season running the football and the ability to create. And then you look over at the Texas-Washington game. I think that could be as much of a coin flip if you if you really look to matchups. However, uh, I lean a little bit towards Texas just because I feel like their defense can create a little bit better um, in terms of stopping the run, forcing teams to be one-dimensional, and then taking away those, those opportunities. Uh, but don't get me wrong, this – Texas secondary will get tested with Jalen Polk, with Romo Dunze. Uh, they will get absolutely tested, but ultimately I probably lean Texas here uh, to get that rematch for the national championship, which uh, would be quite humorous for for that to be the way that Texas is introduced to the SEC, uh, given the fact that they are, will have to be playing teams like Alabama, Alabama Moore, uh, as they head into the SEC next season. As far as the Florida State discussion, Tyler, we haven't really gotten into this. Uh, just kind of curious what your take was as you were watching Selection Sunday, as we watched that disheartening uh, live live shot of the Florida State team as they learned that they would be going to the Orange Bowl to face off Georgia instead of the college football playoff. Yeah, you know, a couple thoughts here. I mean, like, first of all, I realize I'm kind of about to talk out of both sides of my mouth a bit because I just picked Alabama to not only beat the number one team in the country, but like they might be my pick to win it all this year. So I realize that, you know, it sounds a little bit counterintuitive for me to say that and then say I I don't really think they deserve to be here. But that's how I feel, because I think that. I just, from a process perspective, I just don't like it. I don't like the precedent it sets. Um, I don't like the idea of an undefeated power five team getting left out of an undefeated power five conference champion, getting left out in favor of a non undefeated power five conference champion. Like I just, we've never had this situation before. And, and I don't know all all this, this whole thing about uh, best team versus most deserving team. Like, you know, that kind of seems like, like a red herring a little bit to me. Like I, I, that we've never had this sort of, debate before i mean like did anyone in their right mind in 2021 think that cincinnati was one of the top four teams in the country i don't think anyone believed that no one believed that they did they believed they deserved to be there and that's why they got there you know i I don't think we've ever adjudicated this based on this uh, most deserving versus best dichotomy like that that to me is an invention of this season and it's kind of a a post-hoc justification for not wanting to put this florida state team in that admittedly 
isn't that good right now. Like I, I'll fully say that they, you know, very easily could have lost to a bad Florida team. They could have lost to a bad uh, Louisville team that doesn't look great right now. You know, I don't think anyone believes that you put this Florida state team in that field and they win against any of those other three teams. But I just don't like that. They're not getting the opportunity to like, I, you know, we've had wrong opinions before. I think they should have the chance to prove, um, you know, that they're, you know, chance to, prove that you know the the committee's opinion there is wrong um you know and when you look at alabama like are we forgetting that this is the same alabama team that you know only beat a bad arkansas team by three points you know one score game against texas a&m uh, needed an absolute miracle to beat an auburn team in the iron bowl that had lost you know in blowout fashion against new mexico state the week before like it's not like this alabama team has just rolled through everyone since they lost to texas like I just don't know. I, I don't like it. And to me, the biggest takeaway from all this, like more than anything, because like there's no real precedent that's actually going to come from this, right? Like the situation is never going to happen again because an undefeated power five conference champion is guaranteed a spot now. Uh, so to me, I mean, the, the, the biggest you know effect this is going to have kind of downstream in college football is this is just DEFCON one for the ACC. I mean, if it wasn't clear already that the ACC is – you know, not at the same level of, of the other power conferences. I mean, it, it's obvious now, you know, obviously if you're Florida state, you feel that way. But I mean, also if you're Clemson, if you're Miami, if you're anyone else in this league that has championship aspirations, you got to start thinking of a way to get out of it. You know, you got to find a way to get out of here because it's pretty clear that, you know, look, I mean, Cincinnati got in as an undefeated G5 champion, you're being viewed lower than the American conference was viewed a few, a few years ago. So, I mean, this is a really bad situation for the ACC. I think when you look at the top, I mean, it was going to be a tough decision regardless of who was in, who was out. I, you know, but let's be honest, this was a business decision. And you look at which four teams provide the best playoff experience, which teams are best, which teams are going to bring in money, because we all know that college football is a money league. But that being said, I accurately picked the the four teams and I, and I, accurately picked them in the order they, they would go in terms of Michigan, Washington, Texas, Alabama. I knew they weren't going to leave the SEC out. Totally understand it. With that being said, said, was it a gut punch to Florida State for not getting selected? Yes. Uh, did did Michigan did was Michigan upset the fact that they drew Alabama and, and not Florida? Absolutely. Uh, because I think Alabama is the one team that's built to beat them. Um, just the way that they play uh, and just the way that, that Saban runs his program. That being said, I would like to have seen a little bit of, you know, being a little more uniform when you look at the, look at the college playoff committee. The reason why that they didn't choose Florida State uh, was because of how they looked on the field. That being said, that being said as many wins to, against top 25 teams, why didn't they have the same mentality? when it came to picking Liberty over SMU for that, that Jeep spot, they rewarded the flames for continuing to win, despite not being that impressive and having the weakest schedule of any team in FBS. Uh, Whereas you look at SMU who played top 25 teams that played power five opponents. When you talk about TCU, when you talk about Oklahoma, and let's not forget that SMU Oklahoma game, SMU gave Oklahoma everything that they could handle and more, uh, and then ultimately, the talent rise to the top, and Oklahoma was able to win that football game. But to me, I look at that, and I'm like, mm, SMU was more deserving of that spot, but that's not the way they went. So it was like the, the school of thought for thought for Florida's apply to anybody else. 
that's all I want. Uniformity. You know, be consistent with how you were selecting these teams. If, if it wasn't good enough for Florida State, it shouldn't have been good enough for Liberty. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about, about Liberty because I think it just further illustrates that the whole best teams thing is, is a misdirection. It's a misdirection because they didn't want to put a Florida State team in that they thought would get embarrassed, and maybe they would have. But, I mean, like, I, like, I don't know. Like you, see the, you see the frame behind me if you're watching on video. I have no love loss for the Florida State Seminoles, but I just – and and like I've, I've already said, I think the result that this gave us was maybe the best four-team field we've seen in the entire CFP era. So, like, a lot of conflicting opinions or, or feelings for me on this one right now. But I, I just I just don't love it. I, I think it, I think it, it, it is an, antithetical to the, to the spirit of the sport. You know, when you win every game in front of you, you know, these schedules are set years in advance. It's not like FSU knew how bad of a year it was going to be in the ACC, and they still played two SEC teams out of conference. Like, I just – I don't know. I don't like it. Well, if there was any way for the four-team team playoff to go out in a blaze of – well, dumpster fire. This might have been a year. We're going to twelve teams next year. We're still not exactly sure how it's going to happen uh, with the with the format. The there's the there's supposed to be power five conferences and a group of five with automatic bids. Uh, well, don't really know with the Pac twelve. Does does that mean mean that Oregon State or Washington State get an automatic bid bid in? I don't. And we'll get into that as we get closer to the season and obviously moving forward. Uh, but let's talk about who probably got it right, and that's the Heisman voters. You know, Jaden Daniels walked away with the Heisman Trophy. Uh, now, there were some people out on the uh, social media media networks and, and Facebook who maybe thought that he wasn't as deserving because, well, his the team around him wasn't very good uh, when you look at the defense. And, you know, I think that is is Axe's argument for why he should have been the Heisman winner. Uh, when you look at the stats that he put up, what he had to overcome, because if look at for me, if I take Jaden Daniels off the LSU Tigers, how good are they? Six and six, five and seven, four and eight. Uh, he overcame a lot. Um, and, you know, it, to me, it was the right way to do it because I didn't want to see another Heisman winner get get the award just because he was playing for a team that was contending for a national championship. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, prior to the Alabama game, Jaden Daniels was – in contention to lead them right back to the SEC championship. Yep, I mean, completely agree. Um, I think that I think they got this absolutely right. You know, I think that um, you know with Jaden Daniels, like I mean, it really was. I, I was pretty confident the whole time that he was going to win it. The only thing that kind of shook it for me was the night before when Michael Penix won the uh, Maxwell because. Those, uh, you know, they're for the same thing. It's the most outstanding player in the country. They haven't deviated since 2018. Um, this was the first year since 2018 they ultimately deviated, obviously, as Jaden Daniels wins the Heisman. Um, and truthfully, like, I mean, just being on, if you go on Twitter, you would think this was like some, you know, mega controversy. I really don't get it. I don't understand what's so controversial about it. You know, I mean, not to discount the season Michael Panics had, it was a really good season, but like, I mean, they just were not even on the same plane in terms of production. I mean, Penix led the nation in passing yards, so that's kind of where he edged uh, Daniels and Bo Nix out there. But, I mean, you know, Jaden Daniels leads the nation in total yards per game, was an 1,100-yard rusher this year, um, leads the nation in total touchdowns with 50, only through four interceptions. I mean, uh, uh, set an FBS record for passing efficiency, like – 
I mean, it just he, he led the nation in pretty much every stat for quarterbacks. Um, and I mean, truthfully, like I think Bo Nix would have had a good argument if he had played a little bit better and they were able to win that game in the Pac-12 championship. Um, and, you know, I mean, honestly, like I'm not a Heisman voter. If I was like I, I might have put Bo Nix second on my ballot. Like I'm not even sure I'm 100 percent convinced that uh, Michael Penix should have been the second choice there. So, I mean, I think that's a, that's definitely a debate for sure. But I mean, bottom line here is I think clearly the most deserving player won it. If you want to look at the losses, I mean, first of all, you know, this is not cherry picking. There's plenty of examples of three lost teams, uh, their quarterback are having a player win the Heisman. Um, and, you know, in those losses, Jaden Daniels, you know, the offense put up 24, 49 and 28. So it's not like they got shut down in those games, certainly lost because of, you know, the defensive effort in those games. So, I mean, I, to me, it wasn't really a debate. They got it absolutely right. I think it would have been a travesty if uh, if anyone other than Jaden Daniels had won it. But you did. I agree with you 100 percent. I actually think that Bo Nix was my number two guy. Um, you know, if I had a ballot and I, and I don't have a boat like you. Um, so, when, um, so when I was like, absolutely, Bonex is number two. Um, and I think perhaps he didn't get that second spot because of uh, two losses as uh, Michael Penix Jr. in Washington, which I, I totally get. Uh, I can understand the mentality behind that, uh, but ultimately I think they got it right going with Jaden Daniels. Hey, but let's talk about something we haven't talked about in a little bit. Let's talk about the coaching carousel. Almost all of the Open jobs have been filled with the exception of Troy because John Summerall just took the job at Tulane. We had a lot of movement. So just out of curiosity, I'm going to let you kick this off. Who do you think was the best hire of the carousel uh, season so far? Yeah, for me, it's Willie Fritz at Tulane. I, I'm sorry, Willie Fritz at Houston. I love this hire. I think this is an awesome hire for Houston. I think they get exactly what they need. You know, I think they needed a program builder, and that's exactly what they get with Willie Fritz. You know, I think – you know, we've talked about, I know I have on this show a lot about, you know, the potential with that Houston job, the resources, the location, all that now being in the Big 12. But I think there is a bit of a logical fallacy going on there. And, and Houston's not the only program we do it with, you know, just because resources exist and are, are there and available doesn't mean that, you know, you can take advantage of them and, and turn it into a successful product. So, you know, what Houston really needs right now is someone who can come in and do just that. And I think that's what they get with Willie Fritz, you know, a guy who he's not coming from the state of Texas, but has plenty of ties to the state of Texas, you know, um, has college uh, coaching experience there, has high school coaching experience, even was a JUCO head coach in the state of Texas for a while. So, um, you know, a guy that's been around the block, knows the area, knows all levels of football in the area. And that's something that's so important, um, you know, being a coach in the state of Texas. I mean, if you watched uh, Mike Elko's uh, introductory press conference at, at uh, A&M, he made a, a big point. That was one of the first things he talked about was the importance of networking and making those connections with the high school coaches. So having a guy that's been in that you know arena before is going to make a big difference. I think they just, you know, it really makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, you get a guy who is, has been successful everywhere he's been, you know, raised the ceiling at Tulane considerably. And now I think he's going to come in and raise the floor a lot for Houston in a new Big 12 that doesn't really have like a, a clear – you know, a clear hegemony. Like, I think that, you know, it's kind of a power vacuum going on. So, you know, a team like Houston with the right hire could totally step into that. And I think that's exactly what they got. Yeah, I I really like this hire. And I'd be interested to see if Pratt decides to head over to Houston and follow Willie Fritz, uh, should he not go to the NFL. Um, that 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 would be an end move for me, just, just to see. But I really like the move, um, I like the uh, the hire by Fritz. I think is 
tremendous and well-deserving gets his shot in the power shot in the power you know we've seen what he could do at Tulane the last several years I mean including that victory in the Cotton Bowl over USC um, so he he can get he can get up for games and uh, you know I think Houston they need a little bump um, the Dana Holgerson thing just felt like it was just a, a matter of time and uh, that's that's what happened um, they they moved on uh, despite the fact that he made the comment prior to his firing that he has a contract, so he'll be back next year. And I, I'm like, I don't think you understand what that means. <laughs> uh, but for me, I'm going to go to Indiana and a guy who's brought some major ener- energy, already claiming that they're going to be in the Big Ten title game next year. We're talking about Kurt Kignatty leaving James Madison after the job that he did, made them one of the national stories of the year. Now he's going to take over in, over in Indiana, which I think is great. Interesting enough, Kignetti, this is his first Power 5 opportunity as a head coach, um, but not somebody who is not familiar with the Power 5. He was one of the assistants on that 2009 Alabama team uh, that won uh, the national championship. He was a recruiting coordinator and receivers coach uh, on that same staff that also had Bo Davis, who's now at Texas, Jim McElwain, uh, your former head coach. You know a little bit about him. And Kirby Smart. So uh, he's been around some of the – top names in the industry and obviously i think this will be a good thing for indiana still a little bit surprised that they actually pulled the trigger on on fire on that 20 million dollar buyout uh but i don't know uh that there was a better hire for me you know pound for pound than than taking kurt kignetti at the job he did we did with the dude and sticking him in with the hoosiers yeah this was a great pick too i think that um you know Indiana is really trying to tell us that they're serious. You know, we'll see if they actually are. We'll see how that, you know, sort of bears fruit down the line. But I mean, that's how they're acting, you know, firing Tom Allen. That was a big buyout. They negotiated it down to about, it was over 20 million. They negotiated it uh, down to about 15 million. So that's a nice first step. And then you go and hire Kurt Signetti, who's been, you know, one of the best coaches in the G5 over the last couple seasons, you know, a guy that doesn't really have Indiana or big 10 ties, but you know, he spent the last couple of years first at James Madison in Virginia prior to that was at Elon in North Carolina. Um, but he's from Pittsburgh, you know, uh, has played football at West Virginia. So he's kind of got some, uh, I guess, Midwest rush rust belt ish ties. So there's kind of, I guess, a bit of a connection there. But I think ultimately they're just getting a really good football coach here. You know, a guy that has built uh, at multiple programs, you know, is coming into a job that is hard. You know, it needs a, a guy that can develop talent because you're not going to just land elite talent at Indiana. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're no longer in the Big Ten East. You don't have to deal with playing, you know, the likes of Ohio State and Penn State and Michigan and Michigan State every single year. Schedule is going to get a little bit nicer to you, at least. Um And, you know, I'm just curious, you know, if this team is actually putting money into football, putting resources into football, trying to win, I'm curious what they can do with a guy like Kurt Signetti, who is, if nothing else, a a proven winner. Yes, he is. I mean, you look at the 52 and nine mark uh, in the five years there at James Madison. He was 14 and nine at Elon and before that at IUP. 53 and 17, a guy who's never suffered a losing season as a head coach. Ought to be interesting. He's going to put that to a test this week or this coming season uh, with Indiana. But that was a great hire. Uh, for me, the best hire of, of the of the cycle. Now if, we're talk- now, if we're talking about rated hires of the cycle, I'm going to go with Bronco Mendenhall at New Mexico, uh, a guy who really got showed his coaching chops when he was with Brigham Young for all those years multiple 11 win seasons 
multiple 10 or more win seasons. It never really seemed to work for him at Virginia, uh, but I think with the expectations being lowered at New Mexico, I, I have to say between him and Jerry Kill, uh, a lot of good football is going to be played in the state of New Mexico in the next several years. Yeah, this is a really good hire. Um, I think, you know, I mean, obviously Bronco took the last couple of years off, uh, you know, left Virginia, kind of, you know, ha- took some personal time after that. But actually, you know, I mean, he took him to an Orange Bowl uh, in 2019 that they lost to Florida. I was at that game. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, I think that, you know, I think you're landing a guy that's an overachiever. You know, he was very consistent at BYU. He took Virginia to heights they hadn't really seen, you know, coming off the Mike London era. Um, and I think they miss him. You know, they've, they've definitely had their share of struggles in the last couple of years without him. Um, so I really like this move for New Mexico. Obviously, regionally, it makes a lot of sense. You know, a guy with kind of ties to that mountain region um, area. You know, I think he was also, from what I've heard, a candidate at Boise State, too. They ended up promoting from within. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, he wants back in the game. And, you know, this is a program that's kind of get, get, going to give him free range to build in his own image. You know, it's a hard job. You know, it's not an easy, not an easy job at all. You know, uh, one of the worst jobs in the Mountain West, New Mexico is just in general, not, you know, college football central. But, you know, you're seeing the success that New Mexico State's having with Jerry Kill, like you mentioned. There's obviously potential here. Um, And I think in Bronco, you get a clear upgrade over Danny Gonzalez, who, you know, nothing against him personally. I just think he was always a little bit in over his head uh, in in this job because it's just a really hard job. Yeah, and, and Bronco going back to the Mountain West where he won the 2006 Mountain West Coach of the Year for that 11-2 and two season, two season uh, with BYU. Yeah, I think it's a great hire, um, you know, one that maybe people are, you know, kind of forgot about. And, you know, you know, and first when I heard his name thrown about, I'm like, I don't know that he's ready to get back into football, but clearly he is. And so when I look at this hire, I, I think it's great. Uh, I think that, you know, I would not – if you were to tell me next year – New Mexico is going to finish with at least six wins. I would not be shocked because that's how confident I am that Bronco Mendenhall will do a good job uh, out there with the Lobos. Yeah, I mean, it, it you know surely seems like a, a, a you know home run hire for that program that you know is just looking for some something to grab onto. Uh, for me, I, I you know I'm going sticking kind of on the West Coast with my uh, underrated hire. You know, a guy that I feel like also just sort of went under the radar a little bit at Sean Lewis at San Diego State. I think this is an awesome hire. I really like uh, like the vision here. I think, you know, with Sean Lewis, I mean, you know, first of all, just let's just address it. Disregard that whole fiasco at Colorado this year. I don't really know what that was about. Um, I mean, he was making the most of that offense. You know, he was doing the best he could with an offensive line that couldn't block anything. Um, so, you know, I think – that demotion really made no sense. And I think it was pretty obvious that the uh, industry felt the same way about it with, with the, the, the way he was viewed. You know, if he hadn't taken this job, I can almost guarantee you Sean Lewis would be a high level power five uh, offensive coordinator right now. But instead, he's taken the head coaching rank, going back to the head coaching ranks, I should say, um, at San Diego State, you know, and it's interesting 180 for the program, you know, the very defensive identity under the last two coaches and Rocky Long and Brady Hoke. Really going, uh, going back to, to, or not even going back, just, just you know, completely reversing course here with an offensive hire that I think is really good fit, a really good fit for the identity this program's trying to build. You know, you've got a new stadium, you're in Southern California, and now you've got a guy who's going to be able to go appeal to some of those, you know, uh, talented West Coast skill position players. Um, so I really like this hire. I like the vision here, and I think that you know. 
you know, I'm, I'm just kind of curious what he can do. Um, you know, I think it's worked out really well for him, you know, even with the setback at Colorado, I think it's hard to argue this didn't work out perfectly. I mean, the whole reason he took that job in the first place was because despite having success at a really hard place in Kent state, he was kind of getting boxed out for jobs like this. You know, he was kind of stuck there. So, uh, you know, half a season calling plays at Colorado was all it took for him to get a really good opportunity like this. You know, I also thought it was interesting that Danny O'Neill decommitted from Colorado to follow Sean Lewis to San Diego State. So it'll be interesting to see how the Cathedral quarterback does 2024 uh, commit. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see you know, how quickly he gets out there. But I just thought it was interesting. His primary recruiter at Colorado was Lewis. So not shocked at all to see that he has flipped. flipped. Let's talk about an hire that a little bit intriguing, maybe a little bit of a head scratcher. Uh, and, and I'm certain you want, you want to start up uh, up in the Northeast with a particular hire that might have come out of left field for some. Yeah, man, if you're not paying attention to what Fran Brown is doing up at Syracuse, I would maybe maybe keep an eye on it. You know, um, so kind of a weird hire. Like it really came out of left field. You know, sounded like they were considering um, you know Dan Mullen potentially, maybe Jason Candle from Toledo, or even Sean Lewis, who was originally an OC at Syracuse. But they end up kind of going with a hire that, like you said, you know, pretty kind of came out of left field. They hire uh, Fran Brown, who was Georgia's defensive backs coach, um, ranked as the top recruiter in the nation uh, this past season. So elite, elite recruiting from Fran Brown. And he's built a staff that, I mean, if nothing else, that is what they're going to do. They're going to grind recruiting. You know, Elijah Robinson, the defensive line coach at Texas A&M, was the interim coach there when they fired uh, Jimbo Fisher. They really wanted to keep him around on Mike Elko's new staff, um, but he's not sticking around. He's heading up to Syracuse to be the defensive coordinator there. So they land, you know, another elite recruiter in Elijah Robinson. They pulled at least three, I think, um, assistants away from NFL teams to be position coaches there or, and, and one to be an offensive coordinator, actually. So he's building a really impressive staff. And, you know, the early returns pretty interesting. They've gotten a couple flips from power five teams. They've got a transfer from Georgia. You know, I'm really curious. This is a hard job. It's maybe the hardest job in the ACC. It's hard to convince players to come to Syracuse, you know, come up to central New York, but I kind of give this program credit. They, you know, they think outside the box, the Dino Babers hire, they kind of were like, okay, what if we hire an air raid coach, try to bring that offense in here? It didn't really work out. They couldn't get those skill position guys like, okay, well, now what if we focus on the recruiting element and just build a staff full of elite recruiters? Will it work? I have no idea, but it's fascinating, and I think it's worth paying attention to. You know, not only brought up Jackson Meeks, you know, transferring from Georgia, uh, they also got a Georgia area tight end, four end, forced Jamie Tremble in their class, uh, who's a commit. Big, I think he's going to be a big target for them. But yeah, you have to like it. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher if, if, you're, not, if you're not familiar with him. Uh, but tremendous hire, and like you said, the the assistance that he's bringing in, Elijah Robinson, a fantastic recruiter. I mean, he's shown his recruiting chops. Uh, that is really interesting to me. Uh, you know, I would tell you the one that kind of caught me off guard a little bit, but I love Bob Chesney going from Holy Cross over to James Madison. I think this is going to be a really good hire for them. I think that he can get a lot out of his team. He's 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 and and, and honestly, it, I don't know if there's a better guy to replace Signetti uh, than going with Bob Chesney. Yeah, I also agree. Um, this James Madison program just really seems to 
you know, have its head on straight. You know, I mean, it's easy to forget a couple years ago when they won the FCS national title, their coach, Mike Houston, dips for East Carolina, where he's still there a little bit tenuously, but he is still there. Um, you know, they replaced him with Kurt Signetti, who did great. And now I think they've made another really good replacement hire um, in Chesney, you know, a guy who, you know, sort of a rising star um, in the FCS ranks, you know, coming from Holy Cross. You know, I think one thing worth noting with Chesney is, you know, it, there were a lot of rumors that had, you know, Jeff Halfley been let go at Boston College this year. Um, that he would have been a, a prime target for Boston College. Um, so landing a guy that, you know, could have, you know, easily, if things have broke a little bit differently, maybe been a power five coach, that's a really, really solid hire. So, you know, I think James Madison, you know, they've been the best team in the Sun Bowl the last two years, have them eligible to win it. They will be in 24. And I think this program could be poised to truly be the best, at least one of the best programs in the G whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and you talk about a guy in Chesney who's, you know, got multiple accolades as far as, you know, FCS coach of the year, uh, multi-time FCS coach of the year uh, from the Gridiron Club. I mean, you look at just what he was able to do at Holy Cross. He hadn't been able, hadn't been able to get, a, you know, get over that hump, get him any further than the D1 uh, quarterfinal playoffs. But uh, ultimately, I think when you look at what he can do um, – you have to like the the pattern that James Madison is in and to get a guy um, that is well thought of, that is highly respected uh, to replace Signetti. uh, There's going to be opportunity for him to show. And and, and it won't surprise me if this is just another stepping stone for him uh, as he climbs the ladder of, of college football. Really good hire. It's intriguing. I'm not real sure how well it's going to work out. Uh, but I am interested to see how the Dukes, the Dukes look uh, under under Chesney over the next several seasons. All right, let's talk about some bowl games that will be going on this Saturday. Uh, this is the early bowl, so not the big-time time matchup. There's a couple of intriguing ones here. Hey, I'm going to go full homer. Uh, you see the Texas Tech black here. I'm going to go with Independence Bowl, Texas Tech versus Cal, uh, a matchup between Big 12 and Pac-12, soon to be ACC. Still not sure why, or that that still doesn't fit right. Saying it's an AC team going into next year, uh, but I'm really interested to see how Texas Tech looks. Uh, Baron Morton has really not been healthy this year, so I'm hoping that with the t- with the time get to see a finally healthy uh, Texas Tech quarterback, he's likely going to be the guy heading into next year with Tyler Shug, Shug now on Louisville. Uh, so what can what can Baron Morton show? What can the Texas Tech team show as they get ready uh, to go into next year? It's probably one of the teams that people are going to keep an eye on in the new look Big 12. Now that Texas and Oklahoma are on their way out, you also have Utah coming in, Colorado coming in, and the two Arizonas. Uh, and we'll talk more about them in, in the future dates. But for me, if you're looking for one of the games that I'm absolutely going to watch, 815 uh, from Shreveport, Louisiana, Texas Tech, and Cal. Cal. Yeah, you know, two teams here, same record at six and six, but the vibes I'd, I'd say are, are pretty different. You know, I think kind of a disappointing year two for for uh, for Joey McGuire at Texas Tech. Not a bad year by any stretch, but I think you know they kind of left a bit to be desired. Obviously, like you said, a lot of injuries at quarterback, so that's a tough thing to to manage. 
Um, but, you know, I'm curious, you know, there's still reason for optimism, you know, for the time being, Micah Hudson is still committed to five-star receiver. A um, couple days left for that to change, but looking pretty good for now. So, yeah, he's a lot of in, reasons. Tyler. He's yeah, he's locked, he's locked in. They did a, they did a mock, a mock signing day. So it's, it's, that's, that's as good as an actual signature, but, uh, <laughs> but no. So, I mean, it were good. Look, still reason to be optimistic. Um, and I think this is a good opportunity against a Cal team that also six and six, but, you know, feels a lot different. You know, I think, a team that looked like it was heading for a pretty bad year ends the year on a three-game win streak, including kind of a beatdown against UCLA. Um, you know, to get to bowl eligibility, Justin Wilcox, a guy that I had on my hot seat list coming into the year, I really didn't know what to make of where this program was heading. It really seemed like they, you know, didn't have an identity, didn't have the institutional support. I was like, this could be going bad. But they had a good season. I mean, a really solid season, all things considered, in a very competitive Pac-12. To be bowling in this league – um, it, it, that's a, that's an, that's an impressive achievement. So I'm kind of curious, you know, which of these teams is able to grab the, uh, the momentum going into the off season. You know, I think a lot of, you know, reasons to be optimistic for both, you know, I think Cal, you're coming into an ACC that really doesn't have, you know, much to, much to hang its hat on beyond the top couple teams, you know, where you fit into that league, who knows, but you know, it could be promising. And then Texas tech that again, you know, Things are clearing out in the Big 12. This team's recruiting well. They've got, you know, a, a you know, a coaching staff that, you know, has great connections in the state of Texas. Like there's reasons to think this could be one of the more successful teams in the new Big 12. I kind of am curious, you know, which team's able to springboard that with this game. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's interesting if you look at this matchup, um, you know, from a Cal perspective, the two quarterback, two quarterback out of starts for this team this year, both in the transfer portal. Uh, so they're going to be going with a redshirt freshman. So, uh, uh, you know, Benley is in the portal. Sam Jackson's in the portal. So I'm not real sure uh, where to look and, and how this is going to look, um, you know, and who, who all is going to – who is going to play. Uh, I like the running back matchup in this game. If you talk about Jaden Ott, who is among the top 15, team, uh, 15 players in the country. Taj Brooks, who's announced that he will return for a fifth year at Texas Tech, was fourth in the country in rushing. So really good running back matchup. Uh, but I think the L.A. Bowl has uh, has a little something uh, if, if you're looking for an interesting ball game to watch on Saturday. Yeah, I mean, so with all these bowl games, like it's really hard to know what kind of a football matchup we're going to get because you've got opt-outs. You've got portal guys, you know, not with the team. You've got – you know, competing motivations, as you'll see, looking at the Orange Bowl, I don't think either of those teams wants to be there. So, um, you know, it's kind of hard to gauge with some of these games. So to me, I'm not as much looking at matchups just because we don't know. I'm kind of more just interested in narratives. And this is an interesting narrative game to me, I think. You know, two of the teams that I think have had among the weirder seasons um, in college football this year, you know, Boise starts four and five, they fire Andy Avalos. And then, you know, interim coach Spencer Danielson, all of a sudden, they win four games down the – win four in a row down the stretch. They win the Mountain West. They're eight and five, playing for their ninth win here. Like, I mean – and he uh, – Spencer Danielson, by the way, did get promoted to the full-time job. So, he's yep. he's sticking around here. So, really a nice chance to, to go into 2024 with some real momentum on your side if you can beat a Pac-12 team. That has had its own strange season, you know. Started off pretty well, very good defense – couldn't quite figure out the quarterback situation. You know, Dante Moore had his true freshman struggles. You know, Ethan Garbers played some too. Just, you know, kind of some inconsistency on that side of the ball. You know, there was a report that Chip Kelly was, 
you know, about to get fired. And then they go out and, you know, beat USC pretty convincingly. And it's like, well, I guess Chip Kelly's not getting fired. And then the next week they get blown out by Cal. And it's like, well, is he? But he doesn't. He's sticking around. So, I mean, again, just kind of two teams that, you know, sort of had disappointing years, but also in some ways were like had some, you know, moments that were high. So, like, I just I don't know what to make of either of these two teams. I'm kind of curious, you know, where the motivation's at, you know, for a coach in Chip Kelly who maybe is going to be under pressure next year versus a coach in Spencer Danielson who's kind of just getting into that honeymoon period. Yeah, you talked about players that will be missed, obviously Dante Moore Jr. is in the transfer portal. He's looking at potentially going to Oregon, even though they got a quarterback. Um, there's been some talk about Michigan uh, going back to his home state where he played in Detroit in high school. That that's going to be something to watch. Something to watch. Unfortunately, if you are a UCLA fan and you like defense, your top player Latu Latu not going to be playing as he was for the NFL draft. Likely a top ten pick. Um, the quarterback situation, Ethan Garvers, Colin Schley, not real sure which way that's going to go. But I, I agree. I mean, you know, who's who's got the better matchup? And let's not forget Boise State's quarterback that just helped him win the, the Mountain West Championship. He's gone. He's he's already committed to Arkansas. They're going to be going with a true freshman quarterback. So it'll be really interesting. I think the guy's thrown ten passes, uh, if that. Oh yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's a tough one. It's a tough for, for, but still it's going to be interesting to see how all that all plays out. Um, I, I, right now, momentum wise, I feel like Boise's got the moment, the momentum. Yeah. And that's to me, these games are all about like the narrative and the momentum, because like yeah. you just pointed out, like, I don't know how I'm supposed to evaluate, you know, this UCLA front seven without its best player against a Boise team without its starting quarterback. Like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not pretending to be an expert in that regard. So I think with all these games, you just never really know what you're going to get in terms of on-field performance and motivation and all that. So it's just interesting. You know, there's I think there's just a lot to be learned from these bowl games more than it is like I'm fascinated to see this football game, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I will say with these bowl games, the one great thing is these young kids who don't know, normally get much playing time. Um, they get more practices. They get more opportunities to play, to play, which is good for them, and I'm happy to hear about that. All right, so let's talk about the the NFL draft coming up. Uh, let's talk about the number one pick and who we got. And obviously when you look at who's going to be picking number one, uh, unless they go on a run, the Carolina Panthers would hold that number one pick. Oh, wait, they traded that pick away to Chicago. Chicago sitting there. Also in the top five, if you look at the latest projections to pick at number five. So they have two top five picks. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if they stick and pick at number one or trade down and get some more future picks. Uh, but right now, if you were going to make a selection at number one, uh, despite the fact despite the fact that they have fields, I'm probably going to lean Caleb Williams at number one. And I know Tyler does not agree with me. Yeah, you know, I I don't want to be like I don't want to be the anti Caleb Williams guy because I'm I'm not. I like Caleb Williams. I think there's a lot to like there. Um, you know, in terms of like his NFL skill set, I think you know again if I'm picking first overall and it's like I said, looking like it's probably going to be the Bears uh, because the Carolina Panthers are awful and also don't have that pick. So that's was that was really good uh, decision making on their part, working out really well right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Fields kind of playing well. I mean, I'm not an NFL expert, so I don't, you know, we'll see if he's able to, you know, do enough down the stretch with this team to to convince them to give him another year as the starter. But I'd say right now, if you're picking first overall in this quarterback class, you're probably taking a quarterback. Um, and, and, 
you know, again, while I like a lot of the things that Caleb Williams does, you know, his, his improvisation, his creativity, um, you know, I, I do think I'd probably right now lean towards taking Drake May. You know, I think Drake May is a bit more polished as a passer. Um, you know, he's not as as creative in his game. You know, he's, he's not as like improvisational, I guess is the word. You know, and I think that is a, a real strength that Caleb Williams has. Um, but I do think that that the effectiveness of that is limited against the better defenses he's played. And I think he's really struggled against the better defensive fronts he's played um, during his college career, you know, struggled against UCLA this year, struggled against Utah, you know, twice last, twice last year and kind of this year too, you know, wasn't good against Notre Dame. So I just, I have concerns. I think Caleb Williams has the potential to be a really good NFL quarterback and a really special one. You know, if he hits his ceiling, his ceiling is insanely high. Um, But I think he's got a pretty significant learning curve too at the next level, um, which is why if I'm drafting someone who I need to start, you know, 17 games as a rookie, I, I don't know if that's Caleb Williams. I, I think it might be Drake May. You're going to give Bears fans some PTSD remembering Mitchell Trubisky. Yeah, um, I know Bears fans don't want to draft a North Carolina quarterback. I understand right. that that's a hard sell, but... It is. It is a hard sell. So if you were going to sell them on a pick that's not Caleb Williams, you might have a better chance saying Marvin Harrison Jr., um, who I absolutely would take number one overall if I was the Bears. Um, but if, if you're looking at who you need to take, you probably need a quarterback... Uh, especially if there's a new head coach. Well, hey, it might be Jim Harbaugh. You never know. We've heard some whispers. Uh, so it'll be really interesting. We're not going to agree, but I think we both agree that we neither one of us would be shocked with any of the three names that we just threw out going number one overall. But, hey, let's talk a little basketball real quick before we get out of here, Tyler. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a handful of undefeated teams still going on. Nine games in, ten games in, depending on depending on how played so far. But for you, who's the best undefeated team in college basketball right now? Yeah, it's a little bit tough to say, and it's kind of a cop-out answer because they're the number one team in the country, but I think it's Arizona. I think I, I think I feel comfortable saying right now that it's Arizona. You know, you look at their resume, they've got a couple quad one wins, and they're really impressive quad one wins, I think. You know, they went and beat Duke on the road at Cameron Indoor. That's never an easy thing to do. Um, and they have a dominating home win against a top 20 uh, net Wisconsin team um, at home. So, I mean, those are really nice. They have the number one ranking in the net as well. You know, a big game coming up this weekend, they got Purdue on Saturday. So that's obviously a huge test. You know, if they win that game, I think it pretty are pretty definitively the top undefeated team. Um, but uh, right now, I'd say they have the best resume. You know, another team that I, I'd say kind of was was a tough, you know, one to exclude was Baylor, who doesn't quite have the same, uh, you know, schedule. Their schedule has been definitely easier on the whole, but they do have a couple pretty nice SEC wins against uh, Auburn and Florida. So I think that's another team I would be maybe putting up in that mix. I'm going to stick in the Big 12 because I'm a Big 12 homer. Go with Houston, number one team in the Ken Palm, if you look at those rankings, uh, adjusted – Numbers plus 31 and a half. They got the number 18 offense, the number one defense. They're tough to score on. You like what LJ Cryer is doing. There's doing Houston and, and not surprising that they're probably going to be in contention for the big 12 championship along with Baylor, along with Kansas, Kansas. There's plus 12 teams that are going to be up there. Uh, but for me right now, I'm going to Houston. I think uh, just look at what they can do defensively, slow some teams down. They have enough offensively to put teams away as well. Uh, so, for me, Houston right now, 10-0, but I don't think you could go wrong uh, with your pick, with the number one overall pick. I uh, love the job that uh, Caleb Love is doing there uh, with the Wildcats. Another team that's going to be in the Big 12 next year, and uh, that's going to be really tough. If you, if you look at 
at some of these teams that are going to be coming in. All right, but let's talk about the shocking teams. I'm going to kick this off real quick. How about Ole Miss? Um, not surprising. I'm a guy. I know exactly what Chris Beard can do. But I think it's a little bit, shock, a bit shocking just how much has changed where Ole Miss is this year. The Rebels are 9-0 and uh, through nine games. Remember, this is a team that only won 12 games last year. Uh, so when I look at – we knew the impact would be immediate. I don't know that we knew undefeated immediate. And we'll see as they get into SEC play and if they can keep that momentum going. But for me right now, they're the shocking team of the year. Yeah, I mean, you know, the instant impact Chris Beard has had is pretty undeniable. I don't want to say it's like a fake nine and zero because it's not, but it hasn't. It's been a it's been a pretty friendly uh, it's been a pretty friendly non conference schedule for Ole Miss. But you know, a couple nice wins in there. They beat uh, Memphis and they beat NC State. Yeah, they beat NC State and Memphis. So you know, I mean, look, I think I don't think anyone doubts Chris Beard's aptitude as a basketball coach. I mean, you know, he's no longer the coach at Texas, not for basketball reasons, and you know, we won't really get into the details of that here, but. I mean, you know, say what you will about that hire, but I think I don't think anyone doubted that he would come in and raise the floor and the ceiling at Ole Miss. Um, and it seems that he's done that in short order. So, you know, just once again, just a really strong collection of head coaches in the SEC. Uh, we will see. First big test, I you know, if, I, if we're talking about like major tests, January 6th in Knoxville against the number 12, it's the number 12 Uh that's going to be a huge test for him. And then, obviously, they will play your Florida Gators uh, less than a week later. So, uh, as they get into the thick of it, uh, we'll find out real quick for them. Uh, but for you, you're going to ACC uh, in a, to a state that I know you spent a lot of time in. So, uh, go ahead and tell us how your hometown Clemson Tigers look. Yeah, I, you know, everyone talks about Clemson football. You know, after an 8-4 and four season, can we can we talk about some Clemson basketball? Because, I mean, this team is – First of all, it's off to its best start in uh, 15 years. And, you know, they're 9-0. Uh, you know, and again, it's not like that's not – that is absolutely not a fake 9-0. They've played an actually really hard schedule. They've gone on the road and beat Alabama and Pitt. You know, they have a home win against a good South Carolina team. They lead the uh, ACC in net ranking. They're number 13 in the polls. Like this team has been like legitimately very, very good. And it came out of nowhere. I mean, Brad Brownell is a coach that has been there for a while, you know, made a couple of tournament appearances, you know, had a lot of underachieving. I think he's a guy that, you know, sort of is like on the perpetual hot seat. Like, I feel like every year it's like, is this the year they're going to finally get fed up with Brad Brownell? I think this was a really important year for him. And so far they've come in and they're playing really good basketball. You know, their center, um, PJ Hall, he's averaging 20 and seven, been really good. One of the better players in the ACC right now. You know, I think it's kind of a down year in the ACC. You know, Duke's got three losses. I believe so does uh, North Carolina. You know, Virginia's pretty good, but we don't really know yet. Point being, like, this might be the best team in the ACC this year. Um, so really curious how they finish out, you know, play down the stretch. We'll see, you know, how they look once we get into conference play. Um, but for now, this is, a, I think, been one of the biggest surprises in the entire country, and it's a really intriguing team. Yeah, let's not forget they also beat a pesky TCU team uh, on the road. You know, um, they, they're a team that, that kind of shows up. And, yeah, P.J. Hall's been great. Joseph Gerard, Chase Hunter, uh, all averaging, you know, 10 or more points uh, this year, doing a really good job. I mean, you have to like with the way that they're playing. And let's not, for, let's not forget he had the third-best record in the ACC last year. Uh, so I really think, you know, they peaked the year early, but now we're seeing it. And, you know, 
hats off to to the athletic department department there, Erickson, because I felt like Brownell should have been fired two years ago, and now they're they're kind of it's paying off for them. When you look at how they're playing, uh, you know their strength of schedule is among the top in in college basketball. Their their strength of record is among the the top twenty or top thirty teams. So it's 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 not they're they're getting those cheap wins, and, and you rattled off some of the teams that they beat, which just shows you the great job that Brownell's doing. Um, you know they they're going to get tested too. You know coming up in in the coming in the coming, they got North Carolina that they're going to have to play. I believe they also have to play Miami coming up. Uh, so we'll find out how good they are and, and as the season rolls on. Uh, but that's going to do it for this edition of the College 12-Pack. Uh, Tyler and myself will be back next week as we uh, talk a little bit more college basketball as we're starting to get into the thick of it with the holiday season coming up. We know conference plays right around the corner, which means conference tournaments are around the corner. March Madness, not too far behind that. Plenty to get into. But for Tyler, I'm Patrick. See you next week.